Luke chapter 3 verses 1 to 18. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't ex accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Are you ready? Are you prepared? That's the kind of question you could ask for all sorts of different situations. But I want to get straight to the point this morning and ask, are you prepared to meet Jesus? What would you feel about him coming back this afternoon? I mean, would that make you feel joy? <laughs> Just really looking forward to it. Would it make you feel afraid? Would it make you feel ashamed? Maybe you don't believe that there is a Jesus to come back anyway. But whatever you feel, whatever you believe, what would you have to show for your life? For that seed of life that he's planted in you, would you have any fruit to show him? 
Are you prepared for the king to come home? Really, that's the question that's at the heart of this passage, I think. That's the question that we have to deal with today. Are you prepared to meet your king? Uh, Each Friday, we have a film night in our family. And once I get home from preparing or finishing off recording the sermon, uh, if it's me preaching, we watch a film together. And a couple of weeks ago, we watched The Lion King. If you know the story of The Lion King, you'll know that the the evil kind of baddie in The Lion King is, is Scar. He's the brother of the king, the proper king, called Mufasa. Um, and Scar has a plan early on in the film to kill Mufasa and get rid of his heir, Simba, and rule over the Pride Lands forever. And he has these henchmen hyenas. And when he comes up with this plan and tells it to the hyenas, they sing a song. It's a pretty, um, a pretty menacing song called Be Prepared. But if you know the end of the Lion King film, when Scar and the hyenas are singing that horrible song, you're feeling like, just you wait. You're feeling like saying, just you wait, Scar. You're the one who needs to be prepared because your time is coming. Your time is short. It won't be long that you're on the throne because Simba is coming back. The true king is coming back. So you be prepared, Scar. Your days are numbered. Now, I think that's kind of what the feeling is at the beginning of our chapter today. Luke begins in chapter three of his story, begins with seven men of extraordinary power, menacing authority figures, emperors, governors, kings, high priests, that people who, I mean, the eyes of the world are on these guys. They're great men. The headlines are full of their conspiracies and conquests. Their names and their deeds are how they mark time. This is how we know that this was AD 28, that this happened in a, at a certain point in history. But Luke says, however impressive they are, however menacing, menacing history isn't really about these kings. These kings are all dust now. But at this time, a few years before, we read last week, two boys were born. In the back streets of the middle of of nowhere, two boys were born and grew up, and now it's AD 28, and one of them has gone out into the wilderness and begun to speak. Actually, it's not just him who's speaking, it's God who's speaking through him. It's God's voice that people hear through this older boy, and he says, be prepared, because a king is coming. Hope is coming. The sun is about to rise with healing in its wings. Hope is going to come and drive away evil, and turn everything the right way up again. That's what the voice is crying out. He's saying, be prepared for the king. John is painting a picture, uh, painting a picture of what would happen in ancient times when kings would travel around. They would send a group of workmen ahead of them, and they would fill in potholes, finish off bridges, and just basically say, make way, make way, get your good clothes on, have a wash, folks, because the king is coming to town. Be prepared. And so John is saying, be prepared for for Jesus, for the king of the universe. Be prepared for him. How? By maybe by building a palace and preparing a feast? No. By, I don't know, raising an army and getting ready to fight the Romans? No. Be prepared by building some office blocks and warming up the photocopiers so that he can streamline the civil service and kind of get Israel organised. No, it's not that either. There's lots of things you could do to prepare for a king, but John says... What this king wants is for the people themselves to be prepared. Their hearts, their minds, their lives. They're supposed to be washed and waiting for him 
It's the people that he's interested in. That's what the angel said back in chapter one, that John's job was going to make a people prepared to meet their God. It's what John says Jesus is going to do. He's going to gather the grains of wheat, the nourishing, heavy, fruitful people. He's going to gather them into his barn and mix them up with oil of the Holy Spirit and bake them into bread that will feed the world. That's the picture there, down in verse 18. So be prepared. But how do we prepare? Well, they prepared in the same way we should prepare for Jesus coming back. As in, not just coming the first time, that's already happened. John is in the past. But we should be prepared for Jesus' return. How do, we rep- re- how do we prepare? Well, John says, repent, believe, and be forgiven. What does repent mean? And that's a strange old word. It maybe brings up pictures of embarrassing street preacher guys yelling on street corners with sandwich boards that say the end is nigh. It's kind of an embarrassing picture for us. A picture of people putting off more people than they're persuading. But with John, I mean, he is weird, not standing on street corners. He's in the wilderness, looks strange, shouting repentance. But he has the opposite effect. People aren't put off. They're drawn magnetically. When John says repent, everyone says yes, please. Well, at least almost everyone. The town's empty out. Everyone comes flocking to him, to see him, to hear him, to do what he tells them to do. And what does he tell them? He says repent and be baptised. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is a deliberate earthquake. Repentance is the turning your life upside down. Or actually, maybe it's better to say turning it the right way up again. It's recognising that the way I've been living up to now is not good. hasn't been good. And that I need to break up with my past. Repentance is, is breaking up with the old you. It's you, inside and out, grieving over the direction your life has taken and deliberately altering that direction. I mean, altering it drastically. It's an earthquake. It's you turning around. That's what the word means. It's where it comes from. Turning and walking in the opposite direction, away from sin and darkness, away from selfishness, away from wanting stuff that isn't God, and walking towards him. Walking away from sin towards forgiveness. Away from other things that capture our hearts that we crave for towards God himself that we're made for. That's what God is, uh, that's what John is calling these people to do. Well, I suppose it is God, isn't it? Through John. And he's calling them to show that they have done that by doing something with their bodies. As in living their lives, we'll get to that in a minute, but first by getting baptised. What's baptism all about? Well, it's a picture of, of them being washed. Their old life washed away. But it's more about, more than about washing, it's also about belonging. See, this baptism is the thing that People who weren't Jews, who weren't part of God's people, but wanted to be, this is what they would have done to become part of God's people. They would have gotten baptised. And so what was that all about? Well, it was, it's them reenacting the history of Israel. It's them doing what the people thousands or hundreds of years before had done when they were rescued out of Egypt, crossed over through the wilderness and then through the river into their homeland, their new land. If you weren't a Jew, but you wanted to be part of God's people, that's what you would do. You'd go and reenact that out to the wilderness, through the river, and into your new people. And John is saying to everyone now, I mean to the Israelites as well, that that's what you all need to do. You need to recognise that you, the way that you've lived has put you outside of God's people. I mean, even if you can prove that your family tree goes all the way back to Abraham, he says, I don't care. You need to recognise that God planted you in this land that God planted you and me in this world 
but that we haven't borne fruit, that we haven't given him what he put us here to give and to do. And so now the axe is laid at the foot of the trees. And if those trees are dry and useless, he's going to cut them down. It's a scary thing. It's something we maybe don't want to hear, but it's something that is all over what John says and also what Jesus says, that the king coming back, the return of the king is a dangerous thing for people who, who don't know him, for people who haven't come and become part of his people. So they recognise it. These people in John's story, they recognise that John was, was bang on, that he was right. They're convicted. That's the word that we sometimes use. They're cut to the heart. And so they come out to the wilderness as if they're saying, yes, this is where I am. I'm outside of God's people. I don't belong because of what I've done. And then they wade into the water, confessing their sins. And as if they're saying, that's who I was, but this is who I want to be. I want to be part of the new people of God, the new people that he's creating. I want to be prepared. I want to be washed and waiting for when the king arrives. And notice how John says that can't just be a one-time thing. This is something that leads to a whole new kind of life. Because repentance, this is really important, is specific and it's fruitful. Nancy Guthrie says repentance is never a general thing. Real repentance always requires getting painfully specific regarding sins that we mourn over and turn away from. So these people go and they name specific sins and then they turn away from them and they say to John, what should we do? And John says, all right. And he names lots of different kinds of people and he speaks to them and says, okay, things like this. If you've turned away from self-preservation, from loving your own comfort and your own convenience, if that's what your life is all about, but you've turned away from that, then you've turned towards the one you can trust for all of your daily needs. You're not relying on yourself anymore, you're relying on him. And so show that by sharing what you have. If you've got two coats, share one. If you've got food, share it with people. Welcome others and look after their needs, not just your own. That's how you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you've turned away, if you've repented from loving money and all the stuff that it gives to you, you know, money gives you status and security and all those kind of things. Well, if you've turned away from loving money above all things, then that means you've turned towards the one who holds everything in his hands. The one who can give you your daily bread, who provides everything you need. So if you've got a job that means you can get wealthy, wonderful. But make sure that you do that fairly and then share what you have. Be generous with it. If you're buying stuff, well, buy fairly. That's a challenge for us today so easy to just buy cheap stuff on the internet with next day delivery and not think at all about the people that deliver it to us and the standard of, of employment rights that they have or the people in the warehouse or the people who made this in some other country far away in basically slave, slave conditions. It's so easy for us to just serve ourselves with convenience and stuff that we want right now. John says if you've turned away from that, well, then you've turned towards God, who gives you everything anyway, who makes you safe. So you don't need to grasp hold of things and keep it for yourself. You can live for others. Last one for the soldiers. If you've turned away from loving power and influence, from loving to be the big man over other people, if you've turned away from that way of living, then that means you've turned to the God who has infinite power and who uses his infinite power to create beauty and to serve others and to look after little people. So if you're in a position of power, if you're like a soldier, then don't abuse it. If you hold power in our culture, use it for good. 
you could think, what could I do to make this land more free? To make this a place where people are safe to do what's good? How can I use my power to solve problems that I didn't cause? That's what Jesus does, isn't it? He comes to solve the problems of this world. He didn't cause them, but he comes and even gives his life, lays down his power to fix this world. So if you've repented, if you've turned away from that old way of life, it should bear fruit. There's a great story I read recently about Christians in North Korea in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea now in 1907, who were at a big conference and they were Christians already, but the preacher preached and challenged them to repent of their hatred of the Japanese. The Japanese were people who had oppressed the Koreans in the past. And the people at that conference were deeply convicted. God cut them to the heart. And they turned away from that hatred and forgave their Japanese neighbours. And it had an explosive effect. It had a fruitful effect. They went home and they just wanted to live differently in all these other ways of their life, parts of their life as well. And so they started returning stuff that they'd stolen. They started saying sorry for things that they'd done. Repentance bore fruit in their lives. And so you see, repentance isn't. We shouldn't think about it in that kind of awkward street corner preacher kind of a way that we usually think about it. Repentance instead is the gateway to life and peace. It's painful. Of course it is. It stings when somebody calls us out. It takes great humility to admit that you're wrong and that you need help. And the process of change is really uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, any change is really uncomfortable. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. The metaphors for repentance repentance are about giving birth aren't they passing through water into new life and that's painful but it does bring new life it's worth it because it brings about sharing and hospitality and justice and protection rather than fear it brings about honesty and integrity it means you can trust people again and who wouldn't want to live in a world like that repentance is the gateway to life and peace but but who can do it on their own See, if John's message ends there, it's actually not good news at all. It says in in verse 18 that he went around preaching good news. But if it's just, you need to be better. Live up to the standards you know that you should live up to. Just try harder. That's not good news at all. That's, That's just really harsh news. Because if you're anything like me, you'll know that changing is really hard. That, In fact, I think it's impossible deep down to be somebody different than I am already. You see, on my own, I can never change until the king comes to change me. That's why we need the rest of John's message. We need his message of not just repentance, but forgiveness and salvation for all people. We need Jesus. That's who John was pointing to. That's what he was all about, pointing to Jesus. And this is the paradox. This is the ironic kind of topsy-turvy thing that in order to be prepared for the king, the king has to come first and prepare you for himself. That nobody can be ready for the king unless the king comes and makes you ready for himself. That's what Jesus did the first time he came. John explains that by saying Jesus is the one who isn't just going to come and wash you on the outside in some religious ceremony. He's going to come and set fire to the old you. He's going to cleanse you with fire and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit to wrap himself around you, to wash you to embrace you, to bring you into the fellowship, into the life of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's what he's come to do. And then he uses this strange story of Jesus on a threshing floor. 
That's what a place that farmers would have gone when they brought their crops in and they would beat the uh, the newly harvested crop and then they would throw it up in the air with a big harvest, uh, like, uh, what is it called, a pruning fork. And then the wind would blow away all the grassy stuff that you can't eat and the heavy good fruit, the wheat, would drop to the ground and then they'd gather it up and rejoice and eat with it. That's a strange picture to use of Jesus, isn't it? Because it's, at least to us, it feels a scary picture where Jesus says he's going to wipe away those who aren't good, that it's dangerous for those who aren't fruitful and, and I'm not fruitful. So how is this good news? Again, well, it's good news because there's an old story in the Old Testament of a threshing floor, a place where farmers would come to clean their grain. It's a story back in David's time, the great King David. You can read it in 2 Samuel chapter 24. The story of a plague where King David prays that this plague would stop, that God would have mercy. And it does. It stops at this threshing floor, at this particular farmer's house. And David, he's so thankful, he goes and buys that place. He buys that threshing floor. And do you know what they built later? A few years later on that threshing floor, they built the temple. They built the place where people came to meet with God, to have their sins forgiven, washed away, cleaned away as animals were sacrificed. And they came to meet God. They came to be turned from chaff into fruit. They came to have spiritual life at that temple. And Jesus came to that temple. Jesus came, as John says in another place, to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, not far from that temple, where he would climb up a hill and die for us, where he would be burned up in the fires of judgment for what we've done, where the axe that's laid at the foot of the tree of people, like you and me, was used on him as he hung on the tree at Calvary, as he died for us. You see, this threshing floor points us towards Jesus, who isn't just a judge who comes to weigh up whether you've been good enough to get into heaven. No, Jesus comes as a saviour to die for you, to die for me, to clean away all of our mess, to take away all that shame, to take away all that fear so that we can live in freedom with him. See, that's what Jesus came to do, to make a new people, to bring us together by his spirit to make us his own and then send us out to the world like bread to feed the world. So the question is, are you prepared? That's the question we started with, isn't it? But with a twist, are you prepared to say, Lord, I can't prepare myself, I need you? If you're not a Christian, then that's the question for you. To say, Lord, I can't prepare myself, I need you to come and make me ready. Because trying harder isn't gonna get me anywhere. All I need is to want to change and to come to Jesus and ask him to help me, to get specific with him, to name those things that I've done wrong, those things that I crave that aren't him, to ask him to cleanse me with fire, to give me the Holy Spirit to welcome me home and to make me fruitful. That's all we need to do is to come to the Lord Jesus and be a part of this community of people who are walking that same, same pathway, to be a part of God's church, not just on Sundays but through the whole of life. But if you're a Christian already, well, John's work is done for you. John's work is done. So you should say, thank you, Jesus, for John. Thank you that he introduced me to Jesus, that he announced and made a way so that Jesus could come into the world, we could understand him, and that I could know him as my saviour. Say thank you, Jesus, for John. And then listen to John's teaching in a slightly other way. Let John lead you to be prepared for the return of the king. I mean, at the end of time, when Jesus comes back to his threshing floor 
and picks up all that good wheat, all of those who've trusted him and said, Lord, I'm not good. I need you to make me what you want me to be. There's a day when Jesus is going to come back and we need to be prepared for that return. So how do we do that? Well, a few things to help us think about as we go to be prepared for his return. Well, the first thing is one thing not to do is to not get stuck on the summer camp treadmill. I mean, the treadmill of, as I often did as a kid, going away on summer camp and sort of becoming a Christian all over again and then going back to my normal life and then coming back and, and thinking that, um, that sinning, that doing things wrong m- makes us sort of yo-yo in and out of heaven. Because if you do that, if you get on this summer camp treadmill, then, then you end up just looking at yourself. You end up saying, oh, did I really mean it that time when I prayed for salvation, when I repented? Did it work that time? Am I serious enough? Am I sorry enough? Am I fruitful enough? That's a tyranny, isn't it? That's a tyranny that strips away our freedom, our peace, our joy that Mary and Zechariah and Jesus promised we would have if we come and trust him. No, you're not supposed to go back to John and say, have I really repented? Over and over and over again. We're supposed to check our fruits. Of course, that's good. We're supposed to say sorry for the sins that we commit. But we're to remember that because of Jesus, we are chosen. We are loved. We are set apart. If you've trusted him, you are cleansed once and for all. He's covered your shame. You're forgiven. And so how else do we prepare for his return? Well, we've got to ask, does it spark joy? That was a question from back at the start, wasn't it? Does it spark joy, the idea that he'll come back? If not, then you've got to pray about that. You need to go and ask him, Lord, why is it not filling me with joy, the idea that you're coming back soon? That'll help you to prepare uh, as he shows you what's at the root of that and helps you um, to be more joyful and look forward to it. And then we could talk, apart from talking about it with God, talk about it with each other. We talk about all sorts of other future events in our lives, don't we? So let's talk about this one. I mean, most of the other future events in our lives, we're not really sure if they are definitely going to happen, but we know that Jesus is coming back. So let's talk about it. Let's comfort each other with that. Uh, to, to say that, look, the light at the end of the tunnel isn't the weekend or the holidays or a vaccine. The real light at the end of the tunnel of our sufferings is that Jesus is going to come back and make everything sad come untrue. So you don't have to put up with this pain forever. Jesus is coming back. How else can we prepare where well, we can encourage and exhort each other when, when we're struggling with temptation to do stuff that we shouldn't do? We can encourage each other and say, look, Jesus is coming back. You won't have to bear this temptation forever. Keep going. You don't want to find him. You don't want him to find you doing this when he comes back. So come on, look to him, ask him for help, and let's look forward to seeing him soon. We can pray for it and say, Lord, will you come soon? And we need to tell others about it. We need to follow in John's footsteps and introduce people to Jesus and help them to prepare for the return of the King. So that's how you, at least a little start in how you live prepared, looking forward for the return of the King. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you sent John to make a way, to help us understand Jesus, to help us see that we should turn away from our lives and be ready for Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would, if we haven't already, that you would open our hearts um, to, um, to turn away from our old lives and to come to you and know life in Jesus, new life in the one who's died for us. Lord, if we've been Christians for many years or just became a Christian today, we pray that you'd help us to live prepared, to live prepared for the return of the King. Lord, help us to do that joyfully. Help us to do that together. Help us to do that in a way that's public, that shares it with the world so that everybody might know 
and might be prepared for when you come back. Amen.